I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining me today. I recently spoke with Xiaojue Wang about her new book, Modernity with a Cold War Face, Reimagining the Nation in Chinese Literature Across the 1949 Divide. This came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2013. Now, the- Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining me today. I recently spoke with Xiaojue Wang about her new book, Modernity with a Cold War Face, Reimagining the Nation in Chinese Literature Across the 1949 Divide. This came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2013. Now, the book takes the year 1949 as its pivot point. This is the year that marks the beginning of communist rule in mainland China and the move of the nationalist government to Taiwan. But what Wang does is she contextualizes 1949 within a broad international Cold War context, and in doing so, really helps us re-envision how we understand not just the importance of 1949 as a pivot point, but also how we understand modern Chinese literature within a more global transnational context. So after situating us within the larger context of the emergence of Chinese literature as a discipline and introducing us to the major loci of the study, that is mainland China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, most of the book takes us into a series of chapters that each introduce a particular author um, and that author's work as a way of giving us a different kind of entry point into the ways that a modern Chinese nation was imagined or reimagined during the 1949 division. So over the course of these chapters, there are lots of ways in which this study intersects with and informs lots of different areas of not just the history of literature, but also modern Chinese history and global history more broadly. And so we learn about um, the histories of collecting and sort of museum collections and their intersection with history. We learn about schizophrenia as it's understood in this context. She brings us into the history of socialist realist writing. Um, especially in chapter three, and you'll hear about that. We also learn a lot about Taiwanese literature in a number of different contexts. We learn about translations of German literature, poetry and prose, um, in some really interesting cases in chapter five. We also are brought into Cold War Hong Kong, Um, in a really interesting case study that looks at Eileen Chang, um, and you'll hear about that over the course of the conversation. So over the chapters of the book, it's not only a collection of really fascinating cases that will open your mind up to films, um, literary works, and other kinds of discourse that you might not be aware of, but it's also a book that speaks to and opens up a lot of different kinds of connections between modern Chinese literature and other fields. So it was a pleasure for me to talk with Xiaojiu about it and to read the book. Um, and I hope you also enjoy it and have a chance to take a look at the book after the interview. So enjoy. We're here today to talk with Xiaojiu Wang about her new book, Modernity with a Cold War Face, Reimagining the Nation in Chinese Literature Across the 1949 Divide. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Xiaojiu, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. I really loved the book, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it. 
Thank you so much, Carla, to have me today on your show. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. So, Shojia, could you start us off as is traditional for the channel by just saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to the field of modern Chinese literature? Okay.、Um, Actually, you know, I was initially trained in in German language and literature, so it, it was by accident that I、um, later, you know,、um, moved on to comparative literature and, in particular, to the、um, Chinese literary and cultural tradition.、Great. So that's actually really interesting because one of the later chapters looks specifically at this relationship between German and Chinese literature、um, in a really interesting way. So we'll、uh, we'll, uh, we'll make sure to get to that over the course of our conversation. <laughs> Thank you. You're really a very careful reader. No, no. So the book that we're talking about explores、um, very very broadly put, and we'll get into more detail and more nuance over the course of our conversation. It explores mid-century, so mid-twentieth century Chinese literature in a global Cold War context, and looks at a series of figures who are individually、um, and in different places in different ways, but using similar or as part of a similar. Broad phenomenon,、um, reimagining and struggling with what 1949 means in the context of China, of identity, of modernity, and of many other really, really interesting、um, concepts and events, and, and we'll get to those、um, in turn. So, how did you come to this particular topic as a focus for your research? How did you decide to write a book on this topic in particular? Um, I've been always intrigued、um, by ideas like、um, borders, you know, division, and migration. Not just the physical、um, traffic or, or um, um, migration or dislocation, but also the psychological ones, and how this kind of an,、um, a migration, physical and psychological migration, might have affected people, their lives, the way they see the world, and the way a literature is written. As I previously mentioned, I was initially trained in, in German literature, and、uh, um, during my、um, freshman year, I had this an, a German language teacher, an old woman an, in her sixties from Germany. At that time, it was still、um, when, when she came to Beijing.、Um, it was still the Divided Germany, so the East Germany versus the West. But it was after you know during the three years she stayed in Beijing and teaching us German language.、Um, it happened that the the Berlin Wall collapsed in 1989. So for her, it's always you know in our conversation with her, she always mentioned you know when she.、Um, One day, when when she returned to Germany, there was no more East Germany. You know, the, the, where where she grew. Up and so that this kind of ideas of an, an separation or division between the East and the West, I think,、um, is a way through which I actually studied、um, literature and culture. So later.、Um, When I came to the United States to pursue my PhD degree,、um, also in German literature, I, I chose the the post-war German literature, so the Nachkriegsliteratur, and I wanted to look at、um, the Cold War division in in Germany. You know, originally, but then I, I happened to take a seminar with、uh, Leo Li at Harvard on modern Chinese literature. So I re- started to realize actually this kind of cultural division it didn't just occur, you know, in Europe, but it's very much part of my own, you know,、uh, part of the history of of, of modern China. 
And so it came to me about this idea in 1949 and how... Um, division uh, across the 1949 actually affected um, my um, not just the Chinese culture but my my parents generation and uh, how there's always a before and after and uh, if this 1949 is really this very mysterious um, you know a defining um, fault line in people's lives in, in Chinese literature and culture so that's how I came eventually and um, to decide on this topic on 1949 and how to bridge it in Chinese literature. And I pick it up as my um, dissertation research and later um, for my first book. So let's talk a little bit about that transition from dissertation to book. Were there any major transformations from one form to the other in terms of um, how you were thinking about the topic, what you, how you were conceptualizing your arguments, um, or what the structure of the work um, wound up looking like? Uh, when I uh, initially started with my dissertation research and uh, um, writing different chapters, I, my original idea was to um, do a comparative work of both the uh, German division and in a Chinese one, you know, around uh, mid-20th century. Um, but then as the, the work gradually developed, I realized, you know, it was um, probably an impossible mission to complete within the scope of one single dissertation. So that actually led me to... Um, focus primarily on, on the China side of the story. And uh, um, my original framework is to um, think from the perspective of schizophrenia, you know, schizophrenia, both as a, a pathological um, you know, discourse, but also as a more theoretical um, term. Because some of the stories in the, that, that I actually um, examined in, in my dissertation, some of those figures, they all went through a very um, you know, schizophrenic-like um, stage in their lives, in particular Shenzhou and, and also, um, you know, like Ding and so on and so forth. So I thought that it might be a really um, good entry point to to tie together all those um, um, very um, diverse stories. And uh, in the process, you know, so that's the way my dissertation was done. And later, you know, when I started to to um, revise it into a book, you know, I read more stuffs that were recently made available in mainland China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. And, uh, um, you know, I started to, to rethink the entire um, framework. So I think... Um, what I really wanted to do um, further in my in, in my um, book is to to how to go from this uh, cohort um, mindset into a possible decor, you know, critical um, value to to rethink about the legacy, the posterity of cohort in contemporary um, society as well. So um, here we are in, in my um, the, the current shape of my book, which I um, actually also added. Um, and these two main chapters, the, the chapter on the um, literary history, how um, literary modern Chinese literary study as a field, as a discipline, actually was um, resulted from the Cold War division and also my, my um, um, 
you know the Hong Kong chapter, and then later the the conclusion. You know how to and、um, hopefully to come up with a decal or critical position. You know to 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 help us to、um, go beyond this kind of dichotomous、uh, mindset of the Cold War era. Great, thank you so much. And this actually,、um, what you just said, brings us really nicely into the body of the book and into one of the first things that I was going to ask you. So thank you for that.、Um, so the book takes as its pivot point the year 1949. This is the year that marks the advent of communist rule, as you tell us in the book, in mainland China, and the retreat of the nationalist government to Taiwan. Now, previous scholarship has used what you call in the book a rhetoric of dichotomy. Yes. To characterize 1949 as a kind of radical break. So, can you start us off by saying a little bit about how your treatment of and your conceptualization of 1949 differs from previous conceptions of 1949 as a kind of radical break? How is what you're doing with 1949 as a time, as an event, or as a, a time period,、um, importantly differ from previous scholarship? Yeah, thank you. That is actually a very crucial point、um, for me to really conceptualize my project. <clears throat> You no, know, and、uh, we've always、um, heard about those, you know, ideas of. We have a pre nineteen forty nine, and we have a, a you know a, a new stage, a totally、um, clean slate after nineteen forty nine. Like in my parents' generation, they would talk. One is like prior to the liberation. Right, that's the PRC notion for nineteen forty nine. And then there was a new world, you know, and a, a new post liberation world in China, and how that actually just shaped the way people were, in, you know, looking at in recent Chinese history and culture. And for me, I mean, this kind of a, a you know binary.、Um, Framework. It actually goes further, of course, um, just uh, um, beyond the, the the everyday life、um, talks about 1949. We're going to see a set of、um, dichotomous notions like、um, socialism versus capitalism, or good versus evil, or we have an authoritarian government versus a free world of China, and we have like the the, the socialist type of modernity versus a, a, a more、um, Democratic type of、um, modern imagination, and for me, I think,、um, of course, I mean, we actually, I actually myself grew up,、um, you know,、um, with that kind of an、um, binary、uh, rhetoric. But then I started to realize, especially when I started to look at the the literary and, and cultural texts, you know, it's not that easy. This kind of an in very black versus white、um, division is actually something that、um, will,、um, you know. Kind of contain our、um, further understanding of that era of the literary and cultural productions that were、um, made possible by、um, writers and intellectuals, or even by you know just ordinary people、um, from that era. So I think we um, um, during my research, I started to realize we need to look at、um, that era beyond this type of a binary,、um, you know. Containment. Is there any other thing, you know? Is there any other angle or other any type of an,、um, concerns or things going on, you know, beyond or underneath this type of an、um, dichotomous setting? 
Great, thank you so much. And so you set this up in the introduction, and you also set up another really important contribution to the way we understand and periodize uh, this period in Chinese literature. Um, and, and you've already talked a little bit about that when talking about the genesis of the project in the first place, um, and that is your conceptualization of Chinese literature within a broader Cold War context. Yes. And that's another quite unusual um, innovation in the way that you are thinking about the subject of the book. And But since we've already talked a little bit about that, um, I'll just kind of uh, mention that and tag that and mark that for listeners, because that is a really important innovation in addition to uh, the way you're thinking about 1949, I think. So as we move into the body of the book, we move into a series of chapters that first set up the larger context that you're talking about and then take us into a series of case studies. So um, in order to make sure that we have time for these super fascinating case studies, <laughs> what I'll do is I'll just, um, I'll just mention for listeners what's happening in the first chapter, and then we can move on to some examples um, of that, that um, come out in the later chapters. So the first chapter looks at how modern Chinese literature as a discipline was invented, grew up during the early Cold War in mainland China, in Hong Kong, and in Taiwan. And you give us a set piece to understand how literature was understood in the context of politics and culture in each of those three settings, the uh, People's Republic, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, by focusing on a particular text. So you focused on um, Mao Zedong's 1940 text on new democracy um, to talk about the PRC context. You bring us into the New Confucianists' 1958 manifesto to the world on behalf of Chinese culture to take us into Hong Kong. And then for Taiwan, you take us into Chiang Kai-shek's 1953 supplementary treatises on education and recreation to the principle of livelihood. And you talk about that as um, a kind of archetype of anti-communist literature. So you're already setting up a very multi-sided, multi local way of thinking about what what constitutes the spaces of Chinese literature just from the introduction. And then you take us into a series of um, chapters, chapters two through six, that each explore a different author as a way of giving us a different entry point into this larger process of imagining a modern nation um, at what you call the Chinese division of 1949. Okay. So let's get to that. So chapter two looks at the work of a super fascinating figure named Shen Songwen. So to get us started, can you introduce him for listeners? Who is uh, Shen Songwen and what do we need to know about him and his background to understand the work that you're doing with him in this chapter? And thank you for this very nice outline of the um, first chapter. How I, you know, set up the, the framework from three different lo locations and how that actually will, um, you know, engender different ideas about modern literature and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, Shen Songwen is is always this very intriguing um, intellectual figure for me. Um, you know, in mainland China, no one talks about Shen Songwen before nineteen. 80s. And it was very interesting. He, he actually, you know, the, the way that his works were being reintroduced and republished in mainland China, um, mainly through the um, seminal work by C.T. Sha, the, the history of modern Chinese fiction when it was 
um, published here in the United States actually, um, you know, laid the ground for this field of modern Chinese literary study here in the United States. And he actually um, dedicated one chapter to Shen uh, Songwen. And, uh, and, and then later we're going to see um, the interest and people getting curious in, in made in China. Who, who is this guy, Shen Songwen? And, you know, what did he do? And what did he write? And what happened to, to him? So I, I started to to look at him I mean, for for the um, readers. Uh, Shen Songwen is a, is is the one who um, was generally regarded as um, belonging to the so-called May Fourth New Cultural Movement generation. He started to write really early in the nineteen twenties and thirties, and especially he's well known for his um, um, stories, very fascinating stories about um, West Hunan. You know, a region we're going to see multiple. Cultural traditions, you know, and competed with each other. We're going to see the more um, dominant Han um, Chinese or Confucian Chinese traditions, um, together with um, um, you know ethnic minority cultures like Miao culture in in Hunan, and we're going to see the local. Um, Ideas about witchcraft, about wizards, about ghosts, and very fascinating, you know, literary and cultural imaginations. Those stories about ghosts, about in, in you know mad people and how they will um, possess this um, supernatural power and potential to to um, go beyond the human world. So that's what shaped Shen Songwen's literary imaginations in the 1920s and 30s. But in the 1940s, when he migrated with um, the majority of Chinese um, intellectuals, universities, or other um, you know, institutions to the interior of China, and for him, um, Quan or Yunnan province in particular, um, he started to, to uh, go through this, um, you know, aesthetic crisis. You know, he, he felt no more satisfied, no more happy with his previous um, literary styles. He wanted to um, pursue alternative ways of um, um, expression and articulation. He thought that language, literary language, um, might actually um, impose limitations in, and restraints on literary imagination. So he wanted to find an alternative form um, to express his ideas, and he call that his ideas is more about abstract. You know, he's uh, he's always fascinated by this ab- abstract uh, idea of beauty. So beauty is both concrete but also abstract. And if um, literature would be the most efficient, um, you know, form and mode to um, express those ideas that he felt, or in in a really magical way about the um, nature, about um, the human creativity. So um, he started to experiment, to experiment with different forms of writing, and he thought actually, you know, music or mathematics would be a better way to convey some ideas of human um, creativity. So um, when it came to 1949, we're going to see Shen Song went through a set of even um, more severe uh, crisis. It's not just a static crisis anymore. You know, he um, went through this vehement attacks from the left, in particular from um, 
figures like Guo Moruo, who view themselves as this representative of, of a leftist, more progressive type of literature and culture. <coughs> so he was being labeled as this, um, um, you know, the, the um, so-called pornographic writer, <laughs> writer who is always into something that is not um, has nothing to do with Chinese society who are just so decadent, you know, who are not concerned with uh, national survival or, or, or revolution and so on and so forth. So he attempted to um, um, commit suicide in 1949, but uh, very luckily he got saved, but was later sent to this asylum for um, in, in, in a mental hospital in Beijing because um, he started to develop all those um, hallucinations and people thought he was mad. He, this was an insane figure. But still, um, after he recovered from that um, time period in the, in the mental um, institution, he started to think if it's still possible for him to write and, and he got this news that all his books were got burned and destroyed no one was cared or interested in in his literary production anymore so that actually pushed him further down to this um, state of um, um, despair eventually he decided okay he will go to the museum of um, chinese history you know if the government this new government allowed him to um, you know take that step so he ended up as as a clerk you know he's not actually being regarded as an expert of art history but it's just as a clerk to copy um, catalogs or, or the inscriptions for um, exhibitions but and he, he took that as a chance of self-education so he thought that this is a wonderful chance for him to go through all the collections in the, in the museum of chinese history chinese culture and it ended up with this um, wonderful work that he completed it's called the history of Chinese um, clothes and costumes in Chinese um, you know, jewelries and so, so on and so forth. But he didn't have a chance to publish it until the 1980s. So um, basically, I think this kind of conversion from literature uh, via this discourse or this institution of insanity eventually leading to this new space of museum. And if he can still... Um, <coughs> preserve certain forms of creativity and critical thinking. That's what I'm, I'm very interested in in this chapter. Great. Thank you so much. Now, in um, when we meet Shen in this chapter, uh, there are debates, and he's engaging in debates over the preservation of Beijing. They um, call it the besieged city of Beijing during the Civil War. And he talks about the role of museums um, and objects in this context. So this is a really wonderful way to bring us into ideas of materiality and objects in this context. You talk about him as both a collector and as a historian which is also really interesting for bringing these spaces and discourses of museum and text together in one place. Now, you talk about his work in this context and also um, in his work on traditional Chinese costumes in terms of an aesthetics of the fragment and of fragmentation. This is a fascinating idea, an aesthetics of fragmentation and aesthetics of the fragment. So could you say a little bit more um, about that? Because that seems to me to be a concept that's um, potentially um, really, really interesting for, uh, you know, potentially lots of people who are interested in putting together the way we think about collecting and the way we think about history. So an aesthetics of fragments and fragmentation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, that's an excellent point. It really um, 
mean, the way that I think for Shinsong Wang, how to deal with um, the the history of um, materiality, the history of cultural creativity, creativity, um, that's uh, something I think that interested him, fascinated him from the very beginning. Even during the time when he, um, you know. <coughs> Tried to establish his career as a writer, he started to to um, have this chance to go through to classify um, a personal collection first in the 1920s for for this military um, general in Hunan, and that's his first chance to to go through the real things, the objects, the artifacts, and uh, um, beyond the. Any in the book wisdom, then he had the chance to to do that, and then later he 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 was a um, collector of the Qinghua, right? This um, this Ming Dynasty um, type of porcelain, and uh, um, I mean in, in that process he um, developed this very distinctive um, perspective to look at um, Chinese cultural tradition in terms of those um, fragmented pieces of artifacts. That That are remaining from you know the history, different types of histories, and um, in particular, when uh, in the context of post nineteen forty nine time, I think when what really puzzled him is this. In the overwhelming and overarching discourse of socialist revolution, socialist you know um, reconstruction, a monument. A type of monumental um, narrative um, to begin with, but for him, he was always more keen to to the details, to those um, um, different aspects of culture, uh, rather than to to um, build up this um, you know total or totalizing discourse of nation or revolution or modernization. So I think. Um, But but he he said you know what he is um, exercising is also a type of an um, historical materialism that's been really promoted by Mao by the Maoist discourse of the time. But for him, this kind of historical materialism is is more substantiated in the. And material history of Chinese culture. So, and I think by pursuing the fragments or even the vestiges from the history, that's his way to um, kind of reshuffle them in 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 a um, framework or in order of things that totally would um, carve out a different space. Um, you know, in addition to the Maoist more dominant uh, revolutionary or, or historical discourse of the time. Great, thank you so much, Yojia. Now, as we move to Chapter Three, we move to another really, really fascinating figure、um, that you use to explore another context, and this is the figure of Dingling. Now, Dingling. Is a figure whose work lets you look at,、um, in this chapter, what you call a clash between feminist consciousness and socialist revolutionary discourse in her work after the 1940s. So let's talk about that a little bit. Now the chapter closely reads and focuses on two works by Dingling,、um, and the first work that you look at is a work called "The Sun Shines Over the Sangan River." So to help us explore what's happening in this chapter and To help us understand how to fit this chapter into your larger argument, can you talk a little bit about Dingling for us, and specifically explain what is this work, "The Sun Shines Over the Sangan River," and why is it important for the kind of argument you're making in this chapter? 
Yeah, Dingling is um, a really very um, controversial figure, but you know, fascinating woman writer. And um, she started her literary debut in the late nineteen twenties as this very um, avant garde, you know, modern um, urban woman writer. And he cha- she challenged those um, ideas of um, women's emancipation that's being advanced by the May Force um, new intellectuals. She said, "Okay, uh, although you are selling this idea of um, a new type of women of women's emancipation liberation, but it, you are actually, you know." Most of the intellectuals are male, so you were actually men talking um, on behalf of us women. So she wanted to find um, the female voices and female identity from a, a female angle. She she um, had this fascinating idea that we as women we can talk for ourselves. We don't need to be represented. We wanted to find our different, very unique voices. So that's um, his uh, her nineteen thirties efforts trying to to give. Us a series of um, urban, you know, um, young women who um, tried to find their independent position in in this um, newly um, um, arising um, modern Chinese cities, especially in Shanghai and, and Beijing. But later, she, she was drawn to this more, um, I guess, progressive ideas of um, socialist revolution and, and this communist um, ideal. So she um, went through this very um, tenuous um, trajectory of um, from a more um, cosmopolitan woman figure, but into a more politicized figure. She tried to find this political agency for for Chinese women. So she went to Yan'an, the revolutionary center, in the nineteen forties. And uh, um, she actually became a, a friend with uh, Mao Zedong in Yan'an. So she she tried to find a political identity on top of the um, feminist um, um, you know identity. And for her, she tried painstakingly to combine these two sets of new roles for Chinese women. And uh, um, she got frustrated when Mao um, issued the talk on. Um, Literature and arts in Yan'an, which was partly targeted at Ding Ling's more critical um, reflections on Yan'an's women's um, stances, if women can automatically be incorporated into the revolutionary um, course just because they were here in Yan'an, they were part of the revolutionary team, then do they have their still have their own problems that are different? From the men's problems um, during the revolution and so so forth. So um, Ding Ning was purged in the early 1940s because she published um, the pieces like in, in the hospital or when I was in the Xia village, which tried to um, consider women's problems in the revolutionary basis. And after that purge, she realized. Um, you know, we have to probably compromise some of the women's or feminist ideas in order to better fit into the, the overarching national discourse, which is um, mostly male-centered. And after that um, process of um, so-called self-education, self-transformation, she came up with this piece called uh, The Sun Shines Over the Sangan River in late 1940s, which later won the Stalin Literary Prize, actually, So, which was being considered by the a new socialist regime as the representative work of socialist realism. She thought that she, you know, was able to to um, um, piece together these two um, 
identities for women, you know, the the, the more um, modern and emancipated, um, and then the revolutionary, a political um, role for a Chinese woman. Thank you so much. Now, as you take us through her transformations over the course of this chapter, you compare the work that she did in Sangan River with another work that she did a little bit later, and this is um, what you call a socialist realist fairy tale called Du Wanxiang from 1949. So, she later on um, retrospectively decides that Du Wanxiang is the best work she ever wrote, and the reasons for this are really interesting. So can you explain um, what is going on in this work, Du Wanxiang, and what's important about this work in order for us to understand her transformations over the course of this chapter? Um, from the Sangan River to Duanxiang, um, almost 30 years, it was the time when Ding, Ning, um, Ding Ning's literary and also political career went down, you know, it really um, for the second time. She was being purged and sent to the um, northeastern part of China to go through the labor camp to once again re-educate and transform herself to get more politicized. So that means in, in the Sangan River, we still see very dubious um, women characters, which are hard to, to um, get categorized into the very um, clean and strictly divided socialist and hierarchy, you know, along the line of class Consciousness. But then um, in Du Wanxiang, that is work that she, you know, tried to re-enter the, the literary and also political arena um, after the Cultural Revolution. She thought that in Du Wanxiang, finally she was able to get rid of those um, remnants of the so-called bourgeois, you know, dangerous, decadent ideas about women. And then she came up with this more degendered uh, figure, Du Wanxiang, who, who is um, uh, a pure um, embodiment of a socialist model worker, which is um, um, not to be um, examined, you know, in, in terms of um, gender or sexuality. Great. Now, the chapter um, is called Over Her Dead Body, and this is actually a play on what happens to her at the end of her life, and really yes. her life and yeah. um, circumstance. The Communist Party wouldn't cover her body with a flag at her funeral. And so, again, we see this really interesting um, physicality and materiality that uh, is an important part of the story, right, with her, her physical body um, and the objects that are or are not associated with it even after her death. It's a really nice, I think, way of extending the kind of treatment that you made, um, or the kind of treatment, rather, that you gave to the previous context when we looked at Shen and his interest in material objects and fragments. And so, again, we have this materiality that follows us through the book in really, really interesting ways. So as we come to chapter four, you bring us into the context of Taiwan. Chapter four focuses on the work of Wu Zhuoliu, uh, and it focuses on the work of Wu to take us into mid-century Taiwanese literature and look at the ways that modernities are evolving and modernities are emerging in this context. So briefly, um, can you tell us a little bit about Wu? Who is Wu? What's important for us to understand about Wu in order to understand the kind of intervention you're making and how we understand Taiwanese literature across the divide in this chapter? 
Yeah, and with Ujoli, we're dealing with a um, totally different um, context in in Taiwan. Ujoli is a um, was a writer who grew up um, during the Japanese colonial time in Taiwan. So basically, a um, very interesting thing: this work that I talk about, the Orphan of Asia, it was written in Japanese, so in the colonizers' language. But a very in, Intriguingly, it's not you know, entirely in Japanese, and um, there there are a number of um, poems that he included in this work. And oftentimes, when the protagonist felt really frustrated or felt really um, low, in he tend to compose uh, poems. And those poems were written in Chinese, in, in classical Chinese, not just the style, but also the language itself. So it's it's very interesting, you know, um, kind of a um, um, combination in linguistic, but also um, a cultural terms here. Um, Taiwan, uh, Wu Zhou doubt was, is this transition from the colonial period to the retrocession of Taiwan back to China. But this um, transition is not as, um, of course, it's not easy on anyone. Uh, but it's so complicated because when Taiwan was ceded to Japan, it was the, the Qing dynasty, right? We're talking about the, the last few years of the imperial China. But then when Taiwan was returned to China, it was a different China that we're talking about now is the Republic of China. And then very soon, just four years after the retrocession, um, it's not just one province of Republic of China anymore, but it actually became the, the physical embodiment of the entire Republic of China when the, the nationalist regime retreated to Taiwan. And you know, and use Taiwan as the final, the last bastion to hopefully to fight against communism in mainland China. Um, so that's what happened in, on the background in, in the larger picture of politics and, and history. But for the writers, what they're they were dealing with something even more serious. So that it's not just a, a geopolitical transition for them. It also um, concerns with the change of language, of what kind of language they could use to express their concerns and their anxiety um, confronting this um, 1949 division. Because they, they, they grew up um, you know, using um, Japanese as this written form of language. They spoke um, either Hokkien or Ohaka at home as this dialect. And they write classical and they write in classical Chinese. But with the 1945 and later 49 changes, they have to um, start to, to um, acquire this new language that is Mandarin Chinese, which itself is a product of the Chinese modernization since an early 20th century. So for them, they have to give up. They were forced to um, put writing in Japanese because according to the Kimchi regime, this is a tainted language. This is a colonizer's language. You know, you cannot use it to, to um, write about what you think. So you, now you need to use Mandarin Chinese to really express what you think or what, what you're really concerned about. So for those writers like Wu Zhou Liu, this is a huge barrier, this linguistic barrier. You know, how can they really acquire a totally different um, form of written Chinese or even spoken Chinese within such a in, in short span of time, especially for writers. You know, this is just a huge challenge. So I think that is one thing that they're dealing with. And then another um, crucial thing that really um, confronted 
um, this group of writers is that how to really deal with this colonial history, how to deal with the different ideas of modernity um, that were happening in mainland China, in Taiwan, and via the mediation of the colonizer that is uh, Japan. Great, thank you. Now, you've already mentioned that uh, one of Wu's important works and one of the works that you focus on in this chapter is a novel called Orphan of Asia. And in fact, you take this as a set piece to explore and to propose a notion that you call orphanization. So orphanization as a way to understand a kind of split in uh, modern Taiwanese subjectivity in this context. So would you mind talking a little bit about that? What is orphanization and how do how should we understand that concept in terms of what's happening here? Yeah, the notion of orphanization, it, it you know, came from his work, The Orphan of Asia, and how he conceptualized a Taiwan consciousness, you know, among um, Chinese ancestral homeland, um, Japan, and, and then the local, you know, Taiwan society. And he felt it's, it's abandoned, you know, the protagonist in, in the novel felt abandoned, betrayed by all those um, cultural and political entities, and there's nowhere to go. You know, in, in that kind of embodiment of Taiwan as an abandoned son or a, as this orphan um, that's being stranded among different forces in Asia, that is a very powerful and forceful imagery in, in trope to um, really come to terms with this very distinctive Taiwanese cultural consciousness. So, and I, th- I think it's it's something that really um, fascinated me and, and started me to think about the, the cultural um, you know, condition for Taiwan during this time period. Great. Thank you very much. And the um, if you hear a truck backing up in the distance on campus, you'll hear that the truck is marking how interesting, I'm sure, I'm sure that's <laughs> going on, how interesting this next chapter is as well. So for the next chapter, um, we move to a different context and we move to a figure who I'm, I was really excited to read about because this is a figure who studied, translated, and worked on German literature and worked on one of my absolute favorite um, poets, um, and that is Rilke. So I'm yes. really excited about this chapter. I'm really excited <laughs> to talk to you about it. Um, this chapter focuses on uh, a figure called Feng Zhi. So can you introduce Feng for our listeners? What do we need to understand about Feng to understand the kind of work you're using um, him to do in the context of this chapter? Yeah, Feng Zhi was this... Um, um, this is really a fascinating figure. I, I first got to know him because I um, I went to college and in Beijing at Beijing University Beida, into the CUC, um, so, so the Department of Western Languages and Literatures. And Feng Zhi served as the first chair for for that department. So the so the day when I entered uh, Beijing University, all the professors, they, all, all my senior, um, you know, the, the students, they, they will um, tell all those kind of stories about Feng Zhi and how Feng Zhi shaped the curriculum of, of our department. He always answers, you know, in addition to um, German literature and language, we need to really read, um, you know, Chinese literature and in, 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 in all those wonderful pieces in classical Chinese and modern Chinese literature. And then later, when I came to 
do research here on Fengzhi, I started to realize why you know he's so concerned of that we should get a better hold of both traditions in order to you know better understand both and you know cultural traditions, both the German and, and, and Chinese one. That actually is part of of his own um, intellectual trajectory. Um, he was one of the um, most important modernist um, poet in in modern China. He um, um, he was first of all a, a, a German literary um, scholar. He went to Germany in the nineteen thirties to write his dissertation on Hilke, and uh, um, he, he was fascinated by Hilke's poetic writings, but also. Um, and the, the the other you know and literary productions he went to and Heidelberg in in Germany wanted to um, complete his dissertation but um, unfortunately the war broke out in Europe and uh, his um, former dissertation advisor was Jewish so was got um, outcasted from Germany he and so Fengzhi faced this decision what to do next. So he started. He decided he's going to um, study more about the, um, you know, romantic tradition in, in Germany. So he uh, switched from Hilke to to Novalis, and he completed his dissertation on Novalis in German romantic tradition of um, those ideas of an aesthetic, you know, creativity. And when he came back to to China, he served as a professor in the um, in the Kunming, the the associate, the um, so called Southwestern University, associate university in in southwestern China, and he started to teach um, um, German literature, in particular Goethe, and uh, Goethe's Faust, um, you know Goethe's um, poetic creation, and, and so on and so forth. And then he started to also do literary research on Goethe, translated Goethe, Rilke, Novalis, Heiner, you know, a series of German um, writers and poets. But what really um, puzzled me or actually fascinated me is his own um, conversion that he underwent in, around 1949. You know, he started to say, like, goodbye to Hilke, you know, he started to, to, to condemn Hilke from this wonderful inspiration of his own poetic um, writing to this decadent, very poisonous figure of, of you know, um, um, capitalism and so, so forth. So, so I, I, I've been always wondering what happened, you know, you know if he, he, he thought that Hilke gave him all the inspirations, all the sources that of, of vitality and energy to, to cope with what's going on in this world. And then why suddenly, you know, it, it, it just to push him to the to this radical uh, end of disavowal of, of the very um, figure that he respected and admired so much. So why did he um, why did he make this transition? Can you talk a little bit about that um, transformation for Feng and what's significant about his personal transformation that you found in working on this chapter for understanding the larger context of um, this 1949 transformation in the larger set of arguments that you're making? Yeah, okay. I think basically, you know, in each chapter, I actually um, discussed one writer or one um, intellectual who made a very distinctive choice of what to do um, at the 1949 turning point. So um, for Fengzhi, this is a time 
you know, it's it's equally a um, severe challenge for him, because the type of um, poetry that he practiced um, up to that point is something that he already sees that will be rejected by this new socialist republic. So maybe I, let me give an example of an, an, an a few lines that he wrote after forty nine, which I thought very nicely reflected this um, change that he decided to take. So there is a, a few um, lines from one poem he wrote after forty nine. So let me just read it. I mean, it's, it's a beautifully written poem, but it says a lot um, to us about, about what he really um, thought at that time. So the the, the line um, go like this: There was once a naive poet. He wanted to see heaven in a wild flower. A wild flower is indeed very beautiful, but his heaven was rather too elusive. We, however, from this growing western suburb, see our motherland from the capital to the frontier in the hands of thousands of workers has become a blissful heaven on earth. So I think um, what happened here, what he described, is exactly what he himself, as a naive poet, um, um, underwent during that time period. You know, he, he has always been struggling um, in between this kind of an aesthetic um, autonomy, but also um, he viewed it as both a blissful um, um, space, but also as a space that uh, he didn't see any connection with the real world, or as he called the people, the crowd. So he wanted to to um, preserve or to, to cultivate this athletic um, ideal via poetry. But then he sensed that maybe, you know, there is this missing um, connection to the real world that he found also important. Um, previously with here. With Irk, he he tried to find the sense of you know a poetic solitary. You know, he wanted to find this um, autonomous uh, potential in poetry itself. Then he started to realize, um, probably the, the flip side of that is this um, further isolation, further alienation um, from um, the so-called the people or, or the collectivity. So for him, he wanted to bridge that gap, and uh, and it actually conditioned his um, transition or his conversion from this, um, you know, Hilke type of very um, aesthetic type of poetic subjectivity to a more um, efficient or productive type of poet, or according to himself, is a worker type of poet rather than an aesthetic type, which um, through which he can find uh, he can find this new space or this new position for a poet to join this large collective community in in, in the socialist and, and China that was emerging at the time. Thank you so much. And, and this, um, in addition to looking at the importance of the notion of poetic solitude that Feng uh, got from his reading of and inspiration from Zhilke's work, you also talk about his inspiration um, from his work on Goethe in terms of ideas of death and metamorphosis. And you talk finally, um, and I'm just marking this for listeners so that they know all of the great, or at least some of the great stuff, um, in addition to what you've already said in this chapter, he also turns to do as a model of the kind of poet that you're talking about, actually, Mm -hmm. at the end of the chapter. So it's a really fascinating case. And there's another really fascinating case in chapter six. So our discussion would not be complete without um, at least making sure that we spend a little bit of time talking about Eileen Chang um, and Eileen Chang in the context of um, Cold War Hong Kong in chapter six. So Eileen Chang 
is used as a case study for exploring this um, other locality, Hong Kong, that's so important to the larger work that the book is doing. So in order to kind of bring us into this case study, could you introduce Eileen Chong for us and for listeners? Um, who is she? And can you talk a little bit about her work specifically on uh, the dream of the Red Chamber, perhaps, as a way of opening up what's so important, or at least some of what's so important about what she's doing in this 1949 context? Yeah, Eileen Chong is um, um very you know, the so-called, according to C.T. Shelley, most talented um, um, writer, um, not just woman writer, but writer uh, per se in 20th century China. She, she, and her own, you know, background, family history is so tightly um, connected with modern Chinese history. We just talk about um, the session of Taiwan to Japan, and that treaty, the Shimonoseki Treaty, was actually signed by Eileen Chang's great grandfather Li Hongzhang. So, as we can see, that um, in that background, she very from a very young age has already experienced all those kind of different transitions that China and Chinese society went through, you know, from the imperial system to a republic, from a more traditional type of civilization to this opening up to the West or to, to um, the, the larger world. And uh, um, so she's good at um, writing um, stories and essays about this kind of transitional experiences, about the frustration, about the, the, the anxiety that people felt in their daily lives when there's something... Um, <coughs> The changes going on that people don't feel that they can they can really control their, their own lives anymore. Um, Forty nine is a time um, that uh, um, brought this huge change in her life as well. Now, uh, Aling Chong um, studied for a few years in Hong Kong in the nineteen thirties, and then after Pearl Harbor broke out, she went back to Shanghai and started her writing career there. So this kind of an, an you know dislocation and displacement. Um, <coughs> via exile or diaspora is always um, part of the um, texture of, of her um, literary writings. And when 49, when communist China um, took control, she actually stayed in, in Shanghai for a few years. And then later she decided, she even wrote two pieces of, um, um, you know, um, political fiction that bearing um, this new ideas of socialism. Although she was known as this apolitical writer who, who is more concerned with the details of life, of the um, more feminine side of human civilization. But in the 19th Early, 1940, uh, early 1950s, she did uh, spend some time trying to fit in this new and political environment. But then she felt it's, it's not going to work, so she decided to, to leave Shanghai, to leave mainland China. She got a chance to, to go to um, Hong Kong again, and uh, she spent a few years in Hong Kong in um, trying to survive as a translator of American literature. So she actually worked with United Service Information Service in Hong Kong, translated some um, work like Hemingway or, or, or uh, Amazon. And in addition to her own literary writings, she completed two a political novel again, but this time it's anti-communist novel before um, she eventually decided to, to leave Hong Kong. She thought Hong Kong is also not the, um, you know, the, the permanent space for her. She would like to go further away from mainland China and this time she um, chose to 
uh, come here to United States, where she actually spent the rest um, of her life here. Never go back to mainland China again. Great. And so in the chapter, you take us from this um, 1950s anti-communist fiction that she's writing in Hong Kong, and you introduce us to two works, The Rice Sprout Song and Naked Earth. And you talk a little bit about her work on Dream of the Red Chamber that follows. And this is actually a really fascinating context. Um, she, You take us through her effort to actually rework the Dream of the Red Chamber or Hong Lo Meng in film. This is ultimately um, not super successful just in terms of it's um it doesn't get filmed if i'm mm-hmm. if i'm remembering correctly but then she does this really fascinating work called nightmare in the red chamber which is obviously a play right on dream of the red chamber <laughs> yes um, and you you take us into this work of nightmare in the red chamber um, as a way of taking us into what you call her aesthetics of desolation and a poetics of the quotidian so What's going on there? Can you just say a little bit about her work on Dream of the Red Chamber and what's important for us to understand about that work in order to understand how to contextualize Eileen Chong within the larger set of transitions that you're marking across this 1949 divide? Yeah, thank you. I mean, her project on Dream of the Red Chamber is truly something that is so amazing um, for me. Now, she started really early to read that work, right? We, we all know this um, um, Qing Dynasty um, novel, how that actually shaped um, a lot of Chinese, modern Chinese writers' um, worldview. Before Eileen Chang, in particular, what um, appeals to her is the way that Dream of the Red Chamber is dealing with human civilization and it, it's, um, um, you know, the, the, the collapse. There is always this sense for her that, uh, you know, the civilization will just end here. You know, we're going to deal with more destructions, destructions caused by all kinds of, um, you know, human forces, be it war or revolution or socialism and so on and so forth. But what can we do you know, against this background of um, destroy, of this, you know, one day the civilization will just be over and can we still, um, you know, survive and what can we do um, and so on and so forth. So as you mentioned, this aesthetic of desolation, she thought that is something that she can so well um, conceive from her reading, from her um, interaction with Dream of the Red Chamber. In Dream of the Red Chamber, this is a way that the author deals with from the quotidian moments of daily life to write about this destructive um, force of human desire, the destructive force of, you know, when the civilization develops into this excessive, you know, obsession with this um, details, with this um, human desire, then it will just uh, and came back and buy, him, buy the civilization itself. And for an term, especially in the 1950s, this kind of sense of destroy, of desolation, it, it, she feels it even more incisively because of her own experiences of exile in, in diaspora. So she um, started to um, work on the, on the film script for this piece. She tried to um, manage this really almost impossible mission to you know, adapt um, this, you know, really tremendous work into a, a film script. 
she actually took three or at least three years to work it, and she thought, you know, how to deal with this kind of work that defines any, you know, very easy translation from one media, one medium into another. How to really reduce it into this very coherent, enclosed form of a film that two hours or three hours. And at the time when she was dealing with the this film adaptation, there. Uh, different efforts, you know, in mainland China, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, you know, there are other people there doing the same thing. But mostly, when what they are doing is to to give a very you know a tragic form to to package and um, and dream of the red chamber to rewrite it into very um you know neatly shaped um, love story, love triangle story, a love tragic and so on so forth. But for Eileen Chung, that is just too easy. You know, that actually is a betrayal of Dream of the Red Chamber. She thought that what makes Dreams of Red Chamber such a great work is exactly, you know, this kind of uh, um, defiance against any melodramatic, this um, kind of... Um, way to to look at live love or, or romance so she um, in her efforts you know we can read from her letters or diary entries of the time she wanted or even in nightmare of the red chamber she wanted to 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 do something that is more plain you know, that that is not so dramatic and in in this plain way of dealing with life you know to to give life a more ordinary look as life is is something that she thought is so modern about Dream of Red Chamber. She thought that is definitely something that um, really occurred in the history of Chinese fiction. You know, it doesn't pursue a happy ending. You know, it didn't didn't give you those tear jerking moments. And uh, um, so that's also as I um, discussed in my chapter, what caused um, the eventual um, you know the result that people are not so interested in her way of um, um, rewriting Dream of the Red Chamber. So eventually it got shelved. Um, they didn't want to um, shoot it into into a real film. Actually, probably it's not such an interesting film, you know, if we follow Annie Chang's way of reading. So she um, eventually, she actually very interestingly spent 10 more years um, on Dream of the Red Chamber, but this time not to um, translate it into a film, a medium. But this time she, she chose this um, textual analysis, like this kind of um, interpretation and reading and, and academic research on Dream of the Red Chamber and try to show us um, what she thinks that is so modern, that is so fascinating about this piece of an, you know, classical Chinese literature. Great. Well, thank you so much, Xiaojia. Now, we're at, we're almost at the end of our time, but I don't want to um, close without giving us a chance to talk just a little bit about um, one of the really important kinds of work that you're doing in the epilogue. The epilogue is called Toward a De-Cold War Criticism. And in the epilogue, one of the things that you're doing is suggesting something that you call, as the title indicates, a de-Cold War Criticism. So perhaps as a way of bringing us to a close, could you talk a little bit about that? What is a de-Cold War criticism as you're advocating it here in this epilogue? Yeah, the, the reason that I um, wanted to, to think more about Cold War and its legacy is be- because I felt that it's still 
here with us. You know, it, it's a, an still lingering. Although we, we're seeing that we are now in a post-Cold War, or as some scholars call it, post-post-Cold War time. But I thought that actually the Cold War ways of thinking it remains you know, very resiliently with us today. Even you know, if we tune in the radio show today when, you know, when, when Ukraine crisis um, broke out, everyone will pose the question, are we in yet another Cold War time? <laughs> and uh, is the Cold War not over yet? So it, it actually challenges me, you know, it, it actually propelled me to think um, how to put, put an end to the Cold War, not just uh, um as a historical event or as a you know historical indicator of time, but it's something that there is this kind of you know a mindset, this Cold War mentality of think, um, looking at the world in more binary ways. I think that's why what I propose as a de-Cold War consciousness is not just to say goodbye to Cold War, but to go back, you know, to rethink some of the Cold War moments. That probably um, we can um, decode or, or we can destruct or we can think against the green of the Cold War from within. So uh, for me, I mean, some of those writers, some of those cultural productions, they raised um, the alternative spaces to um, really go against this more, um, you know, um, dichotomous setting um, of this um, seemingly un penetrable um, cage of the Cold War. So uh, I, I hope that through those, the study of the cultural figures of the time and what they really uh, are dealing with, what they wrote about, with, what they experimented, even by refusing to write again or to write differently, then maybe we can see you know, new agencies that will help us to, to go beyond this kind of an, um, you know, um, trajectory of bifurcation that I call the Cold War. Great. Well, thank you so much, Xiaojia. Um, now, there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's full of lots more stories and case studies and accounts and concepts than we had time to talk about. Is there anything else about the book in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who have not yet had a chance to read the book? Uh, if there's one thing I'd like to say a bit more about is in, um, actually my book cover. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a copy um, here with you, you can see this. Uh, what I chose um, is the image, one image from Xu Bing's installation work entitled um, Ghosts Pounding the Wall. For me, I mean, th- this notion of um, um, ghost pounding the wall, you know, in a very nice way, you know, fit very well into my own um, interests that are um, illuminated in, in this book. I mean, Gui Da Qiang, the notion in Chinese, it actually very well paints this visual image that there is a wall that that was built by ghosts, and this wall will, you know, encircle. A night traveler, you know, no matter how how much the the, the traveler um, tried, how fast he runs or works, he will actually 
going in circles within this invisible world's confines. So for me, it actually evokes a, a range of ideas and connotations that uh, really um, appeal to me during my research. That is in the war image, right? The war, how that uh, evokes the ideas of demarcation, of boundaries, of separation, and also the spectral image and uh, the image or the notion about human agencies or human impotence you know, within the certain confines of the war, as war also indicates you know, the, the weight of history, the weight of ideology, the weight of the Cold War um, ideology of the time. So I think um, I, I'm very grateful that she being, you know, granted me this copyright to use it, this image here. And the year when I, um, you know, started my graduate study, it's a year when the Berlin Wall collapsed. But for me, I mean, there, 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 there are more wars existent um, everywhere in, in the world, and especially in also in, in, in the discipline of modern Chinese literary study itself and how to go beyond the war. You know, it's, it's not just to destroy the war because there are so many invisible wars that are so hard to destroy. But the, this kind of awareness that there will be wars, more wars um, existent and how we can come to terms of these different forms of demarcation and separation and division, but try to make connections, you know, try to go beyond, try to bridge it. Is, that's something that really interested me. Well, Xiaojie, um, thanks very much for spending the time to talk with me today. And now that the book's out, we should probably close by looking forward a little bit. So now that the book's out, uh, what are you working on right now? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you and uh, prompting some future work? Um, I'm actually working on my second book. Um <laughs> which the book manuscript will be wrapped up very soon. It's a book actually on Eileen Chang. <laughs> you know, I, I started my research on Eileen Chang and her co-war um, you know, transition. And after I'm done with that chapter, I felt there were, there's so much more you know, that should be examined and, and uh, um, discussed about this fascinating writer. So um, that actually gave me this idea, okay, I... I definitely would like to write more about her. And one chapter leads to another, and then it actually evolves into this book manuscript that I um, entitled tentatively The Edges of Literature, Eileen Chong and uh, The Aesthetic of Deviation. And I, I briefly mentioned that C.T. Xia introduced and actually canonized Eileen Chong in, in his work, History of Modern Chinese Fiction. But ever since that, we didn't see any um, you know, monograph dedicated to her and her work in the English language world. So for me, that is, it, it is a big gap. I mean, we, we really need to write something more about her. And uh, um, for me, the, the, the um, perspective that I took um, for this book is actually, I hope that through the, the study of Eileen Chan and especially her literary and cultural practice across language, we know her, her as a bilingual writer. So across language, across genres, media, and the boundaries between like high art and popular culture, I would like to um, 
you know, reconsider the notion of literature and artistic creativity that's being um, shaped by the Mayforce uh, Cultural Project in modern China. I would like to explore the, the blind spot and the limitations, you know, of this new idea of literature and literary creativity, hopefully through Eileen Chang's case, to really probe the edges of literature and to think um, if there are alternative ways that we can conceive, conceptualize literature and artistic creativity. Wonderful. Well, best of luck on that project. Um, Thank you. On this one, and thanks very much for making the time. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. The pleasure is mine. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.